The future belongs to those who control the culture, and the culture belongs to those who control the conversation. So we are having the conversations you wish you could have at church to build a safe and vibrant community. This is the Oz Table Talk podcast. Well, welcome to another episode of Oz Table Talk. I have a, a, a special guest today, one that it's pretty likely that none of you listening have heard of Tim before, but I'm speaking with Tim Baumgarten. Uh, so, Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So, uh, for those of you who uh, are trying to uh, place you, Tim, can, can you like tell us uh, just a little bit about yourself? Well, I live in Orangeburg, South Carolina. And uh, I am the head elder of the Orangeburg Seventh-day Adventist Church in Orangeburg, South Carolina. And um, you may know my uh, steps, stepson, Caleb. He was uh, the founder of Humans of Adventism. Yeah. And basically, I, I think that's probably going to be the, uh, the the key for a lot of people out there that if they've heard of Humans of Adventism, so there is a, that direct connection there. And uh, what the purpose or well, the reason that I, I was really keen to interview you, Tim, today is just to talk about your experience uh, specifically in, in ministry at Orangeburg. But so we can set the scene a little bit for, for the listeners, can you just tell us a little bit about uh, maybe your history of maybe where did you grow up and what do you do for, for work? Uh, well, I was born in South Carolina. I grew up in North Carolina. I spent some time in the Army. Uh, while I was in the Army, I found my way to Christ. After uh, my uh, first marriage ended, I kind of left the church for a, a, a good while. And uh, then I met Caleb's mom, and uh, we got to talking about faith one day, and she told me she was a Seventh-day Adventist, and uh, I had never heard of a Seventh-day Adventist. So... Uh, that sparked an interesting conversation, and over a number of years, I watched her and her family and how things played out um, after we got married, and, uh, you know, I just didn't understand it. It didn't make a whole lot of sense to me, especially the whole Ellen White thing, and uh, I set out to kind of disprove that it was uh, correct, and I've studied my right self right into being a Seventh-day Adventist, so um, here I am now as a head elder of a church. But um, I'm a, a, a corporate trainer, and um, I train people mostly in communication skills and uh, organizational health and organizational management, uh, some things like that. Mm. I'm also a, a, a natural church development coach. If you're familiar with that, I uh, volunteer to our church conference and uh, coach some of our churches that uh, might be struggling with growth a little bit. Yeah, that's a really great sweep. So just to... Uh, jump back a little bit. Uh, you were mentioning it was your time in the army where you met Christ for the first time. Uh, what what did that story look like? What was the catalyst that made you make that decision in the first place? Well, my uh, first wife and I were having some marital problems, and um, I had gone to a, a, a counselor who was a Christian. And uh, the more we talked, the more I was kind of attracted to what he had to say. And, um, you know, it was did some Bible studies, and uh, he hooked me up with a, uh, a Southern Baptist um, uh, colonel chaplain in the Army, and uh, uh, he and I met a good many times, and uh, after talking through, uh, I, I finally accepted Christ. Um, it was a pretty straightforward story, nothing spectacular about it. Mm. 
Yeah, no, I was just interested to hear the, the background there. So when you when you were first introduced to Adventism, um, obviously you mentioned that Ellen White was one of the the sticking points. Were there was there anything that stood out to you uh, in a positive sense as being different uh, about the church at the beginning? Like anything that piqued your interest that you thought that uh, resonated with you? Actually, no, not at first. Yeah, mostly I. I... It, it it having come from a whole Sunday church background and um, you know a very um, um, you know the Southern Baptist faith that's the faith that I grew up uh, I grew up in and I grew up in the church uh, but uh, had you know uh, during my teenage years I kind of stepped away from it before I went into the military and um, you know they're they're pretty. Um, a lot like Adventist, a lot like some Adventists, in that you know things were really strict, and there was certain things you weren't allowed to do, and so forth. And so, I had kind of rejected all of that. So when I started getting exposed to Adventism, my tendency was to uh, to kind of reject it wholesale. Um, but certain parts of it started making me curious, and uh, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, you know that little thing over there makes sense. I kind of like this whole idea of having a, a day of unplugging and uh, the health message sounded pretty good. And, you know, over a period of time, and, and like I said, I I, I uh, dove into the scriptures to prove it all wrong and realized that it was totally correct. Hmm. Just curious, because a lot of people have uh, v- various ways that they, you know, interact with the church, and some accept it on a more intellectual level, some accept it on a more uh, personal or social level. D- did the people play a role? Like, I, I imagine uh, your your wife at the time, or, or the friends that were around you, or the church that she was going to. Was there any effect there, or was for you was it more of that intellectual uh, acceptance at first? No, absolutely. People played a role in it. Um, Stace, my wife, is a fourth-generation Adventist, Mm -hmm. and um, her family were were very lovely and very welcoming to me. Um, They uh, were very understanding, and nobody ever tried to convert me per se. They just lived it out loud, Mm -hmm. Uh, especially her grandfather. He was a guy who who, he was a very quiet— man who just lived his faith out loud and he didn't have to say words so much as he you just saw it in his actions and all of that had a really big impact on me um and uh the as i had considered it my we we actually started attending in an adventist church uh and um i decided that you know what i'm just gonna i wanted to get back in church i was not quite convinced to join the church yet but i joined the praise team and started playing guitar with the praise team and my wife joined started singing and after about a year and a half of that um, the pastor from the church looked at me one day and said well you're you're not a member here are you Tim?" and i said no and I'm, I'm not and he just very quietly said well we're ready when you are and that did it Right. So you, you were just you felt that you had uh, found an, enough of a firm foundation to make the make the jump. Yeah, and it was the quiet, gentle invitation I think that just kind of pushed me over to this uh, the top. Um, that was a, a Friday evening. We were rehearsing for the service the next morning, and uh, I leaned over to my wife and whispered in her ear that I was ready. And I, I saw a tear 
go down her cheek. And I, that was the moment I understood how important it was to her. And she had just patiently waited for me. Hmm. And um, so those things kind of combined really changed it for me when I hadn't reached the time to make the decision. And so uh, obviously this wasn't uh, Orangeburg Church. So how did you get from there to Orangeburg Church? Well, the company I was working for at the time, I was the director of sales and marketing, and uh, we pretty much covered the entire southeastern U.S., so uh, where I lived wasn't very important, and uh, my wife's family, my wife's parents, when they retired, decided to move out into the area where we currently live, and so on the way to uh, their house to help them unload the moving truck, my wife made a wrong turn, and she turned around in the driveway of the house that we now live in. <laughs> and uh, she called me, and she said, I found the house I want to live in for the rest of my life. So we ended up buying it. <laughs> and that's how we came to be living here. Wow. And so when you did uh, move there and you, you visited the church, what uh, what did you see? Like, what was the what was the state of the church? What did you feel when you went there the first time? We immediately said, we don't want to go to church here. <laughs> and how did you then, how did you get past that? <laughs> well, we, um, uh, you know, our, her parents said had had the same reaction to the church. And don't get me wrong, this was a lovely little church. Um, it only had a few members. And, you know, you could see that the people loved the Lord and they were wonderfully lovely people. But it just felt like there wasn't anything happening that was dead. Hmm. And um, we all just felt called. We all felt like we had to come back. And, you know, we, you knew the Holy Spirit was talking to you. He's telling you to go back and go back and go back. And so uh, it just became clear over time that we were supposed to join this church. So we did. And so how long before joining the church and actually becoming involved in the church? Or was it an in, pretty, basically an instant thing or was it uh, a, slow, a slow change? Um, it wasn't very long. You know, a month or two, we started getting involved in things. And uh, um, the church had actually gone through the natural church development process. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but um, it, it is a, a – a, it's – a wonderful thing to help churches understand where they are and where they need to go. And uh, they had been, um, our, our church conference had come down and visited and uh, talked to them about that they were in decline and that, uh, you know, certainly some things that needed to change. Uh, uh, um, it was kind of said, but not said that um, there was a good chance we would close the doors if uh, we continued to decline the way we were. Um, this was before we had gotten there, and so they had gone through the process, and so we happened to be there the day that uh, the NCD coach came to go over the results of the survey, and so as I was listening to it, I could see that a lot of the church members didn't understand it very well, but um, because of my experience in organizational management and stuff, I understood it very well, and the, the, the pastor and I kind of that led us into a long conversation and uh, about what should we do with this information and how do we get it corrected. So uh, I agreed to serve on the, the church health team, and uh, uh, shortly thereafter I got elected head elder, and um, 
And so, you know, how, we started how putting long, in. How long had you been an Adventist at this point? Uh, not very. <laughs> <laughs> Probably about six, seven months. Oh wow. Uh, um, and the pastor and I had a long talk about that because I know that that's uh, not only frowned on, but in Ellen White very much recommends that that not be done. But uh, the. Uh, the pastor felt like that because of my unique circumstances, he felt pretty good about having me serve in that role, and he agreed to coach me. We met um, we met every Wednesday for a couple of years after that um, while he coached me in how to be an elder and uh, certainly how to be a head elder. And uh, the church really rallied around me. And uh, lifted me up, and I had a couple of uh, really good people. Our, our head deacon um, is an older gentleman who's been in the church forever, and uh, he really uh, kind of took me under his wing and helped guide me along in all those areas that that I didn't quite know how to handle. So uh, mm-hmm. I had a ton of support. It wasn't that I was thrown to the wolves. Mm-hmm. That that's beautiful to hear because so often when people uh, are in responsible positions they're not discipled because people see them oh they're in the position so they don't need help but it's it's wonderful that you're part of a church that would do that and also that your pastor was willing to put the time in with you to to achieve that as well that's beautiful yeah i I never once um i never once felt like somebody had let me out to dry Mm. um the 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 previous head elder had been in place for 10 years and the the poor guy was just wore out Mm. And so, uh, you know, we we needed to help him and let him rest a little bit. And um, the, but nobody nobody left me out to dry. That that, that never happened. Hmm. That's great. So when you when you did start getting involved, what was was it clear to you that okay, this is the first thing we need to work on? Like I know you're doing NCD, so it was was it a case of for those for those of you who are listening in NCD, they identify these key areas that church where a church is weak, where a church is strong, and whatever is weak, the church can then focus and and work on. Um, so it, what was what was your first task? Was it was it the NCD or was it something else? As in the first no, we project. started with the NCD. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the NCD kind of pointed the way for us. The the two of the things we scored the lowest on was our worship service and our music. Our music was the absolute lowest score, mm-hmm. and uh, so we put some focus on that. Uh, you know, my, my wife's a pianist and I'm, I'm a guitarist dominantly. Uh, I play a couple other instruments, but um, you know, we started working with the the group that was there. And just started trying to gently change things. Uh, we certainly had some tradition going on there, and we certainly had people that were reluctant to change. I think, luckily for us, we didn't have anybody that dug their heels in and just refused to. But um, what we tried to do was is find a happy medium between um, changing to what our congregation was asking for and not being disrespectful, you know, being considerate of how different people viewed different things. And then uh, during that, and, and we also decided that we wanted to focus on hospitality and we wanted to um, put some real effort in that if you walked in the doors of our church, that you immediately felt the love of Jesus there. And um, we talked about that endlessly. We went to uh, a bunch of evangelism seminars and stuff, and we, we brought back information and we we trained ourselves how to be 
a hospitable church, not just a welcome church. It's not the same thing. And um, Can so, you explain uh, the difference for for those listening. Absolutely. Um, there's the Fort Principle, and and I always forget one of these, so I'm going to apologize in advance. But uh, it's just a series of questions about how to have a conversation. Uh, F is where are you from. Um, o is what is your occupation. R is do you have relatives in, in the area, and T is your testimony. And so um, I remember. Wow, yeah, God go. is good all the time. <laughs> uh, the um, and so we taught that to our members, and uh, I knew we had won the day that one of our oldest members was there. Uh, she's not the oldest member, but she's one of our older members. And I happened to walk up behind her, and she was talking to a guest. And she said, "So, where are you from? And do you go to church somewhere around here? Where do you, you know? Where do you attend church?" And she was going through the the, the process, and I, I knew we had had accomplished something there. So, um, we we did a lot of things. We put little gift bags together to give to people and all that. But you know, we wanted to make sure that when you came in our church, everybody spoke to you. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, if you'll come in the doors of our church, nearly everybody there will speak to you. They'll come over and greet you, shake your hand, ask you who you are. Uh, we did away with that uh, process of uh, when you have a visitor asking them to stand up and tell where they are, that people are embarrassed by that. So um, we, you know, we put some effort into trying to figure out what made people feel welcome and warm. And uh, we've gotten a lot of feedback through it. Well, our church is off of an interstate highway where people travel uh, but mostly between New York and Florida. And um, we have travelers now that will stop in and visit with us again after they've stopped in to worship with us on their during their travels. So uh, I feel like that was a huge win. Mm-hmm. And we also have uh, people from our neighborhood now that come to church there. We've got about five people from the neighborhood that have uh, started coming, and that's um, – not necessarily a common thing in American churches. I don't know what you experience there, but mm. uh, a lot of our churches are not located in neighborhoods, mm. and we just happen to be. And so uh, we're starting to get a little spillover now, and people from our local neighborhood will, will walk to church and come and come worship with us. So it's pretty cool. And how did they— I hope I've answered your question about what the difference is. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. So I'm just wondering because the culture is much the same uh, over here, and and that is uh, it's quite common to have people that—sorry, churches with no one from the local uh, neighborhood attending them. And so I'm just curious, how did you get to the place? Like, how did those people in the neighborhood get to know that you existed and actually come to interact with you in the first place? Well, when we would uh, we would come, I'll give you a great example. This is a true story. Um, we were all standing outside of our church, and a young man walked by, and several of us spoke to him. And he said, you know, I've been walking by this church every Saturday morning for five or six years and y'all are the first people that have ever spoken to me <laughs> and that right there is where we started just we started greeting people and inviting them we didn't be pushy we didn't try to you know walk up to them and hold out your hand and say let me tell you about the 28 fundamental beliefs <laughs> we just simply said hey you know um We'd, we'd love to have you come and worship with us, and we have a fellowship meal. Why don't you come and have lunch with us? 
and we'll feed you and you know there's no strings attached we won't even preach to you unless you want to know uh you know what i'm I'm saying just uh we tried to just connect with people and obviously it worked because like you say you've got a few what is that like five people from the local community now coming that's that's beautiful uh, we've got five, and uh, and uh, some of them are starting to bring others. So uh, it's been a beautiful thing to see unfold. Mm. Now, uh, I know that you have an interest in intergenerational church. C- can you elaborate on what that is and why you feel it's important? Yeah, so um, I probably need to give you kind of how I arrived there very quickly. Yeah, sure. Um, during my time as a, as a sales and marketing director, I um, had a rather large sales team that covered you know several states and um, I had occasion to go to a sales seminar about selling to different generations and it was fascinating and it, you know it talked about different behaviors and different reasons why uh, people think the way they do and and so forth and uh, so I'm in church the following Sabbath and the pastor's given a sermon and I to this day cannot remember what the sermon was about because the light bulb started going off in my head about, wow, this is a very real conversation inside the church, and this is something that is important. This is where we are struggling, in my opinion, probably the most, is that we don't know how to speak to each other. So I took the uh, the, the uh, training series that I started building for my sales team, and I converted it over to uh, doing a, a series of intergenerational communication seminars for the church. Um, we called it Ministering to the Generations. And it's a five-part series. We focus one per uh, of the living generations in the church. And um, so we started doing that at our church, and uh, it really seemed to help. People started understanding um, you know, we I, I witnessed something early on in our experience in our church was a very well-intentioned and a lady who was um, a long-time member of the church said, quote, well, you know how young people are today. And I watched two millennials get up out of the back of the church and walk out the door. And once we started making people understand that that's offensive mm. and – Making people understand that hey, here's how millennials think. It's how they. Per- this is how they perceive the world. This is how you perceive the world, and you can see where the disconnects lie. So if you'll just make an ever so slight adjustment here in how you say things, we don't need to change the truth. We just need to change how we talk about it. Hmm. And uh, so uh, that's actually blossomed into something else. I do a, do those uh, seminars for quite a few churches and now my, even my company has me doing a business version of that for for uh, them as well I, I've probably given about 50 of them this year oh wow so this um, this program for the for the churches is there anywhere that that's available like could people are there videos or anything like that that people could access as yet no I haven't done that um, it, it's just been a personal ministry um the the materials that I've used are largely things that I've gotten uh, off of uh, like for example you know I use a lot of PowerPoint uh, presentations but uh, the graphics and things that I use I don't have licenses for much of them so I I've been trying to be careful about not making that available for general use I don't want to uh, 
run into any copyright issues or anything like that. But uh, I've not, I've, and I haven't really given it. Oh, sorry, I was just going to say, if you ever do get to a place where, where it's a shareable thing, let, let us know. I'll, I'll be happy to share it with our audience. I, I would love to. I've, I've actually not given a lot of thought about kind of doing a big thing like that. Uh, it's just been something that I've done on invitation as uh, some of the different churches have invited me to. But it's been a blast. Uh, probably the most humbling experience that I had was after uh, – after the last one that I did uh, in Charleston, South Carolina, a lady came up to me at the end of the last series after we talked about Gen Z, and uh, she said, Tim, I want you to know that uh, because of what I've learned here, I, I called all four of my children, her children were adults, and she said, I apologize to them about how I've spoken to them and treated them for the, over the years, and you could have just picked my jaw up off the floor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was stunned to hear that. And she said, well, I've been pretty estranged from my youngest daughter for uh, about four years now. And we had an hour-long conversation last night. And I was just blown away by that. You could ask my wife. I was quiet all afternoon. I was so humbled by that. Just, wow, mm-hmm. that you know somebody's life could be impacted like that and maybe help somebody repair a relationship in their family. Mm-hmm. Um Man, that God is awesome. Yeah, amen. That's amazing. So just something that, uh, just for the sake of being practical for the people that are listening, if uh, are there any key principles that you could share from this concept of intergenerational communication that people can keep an eye out for? Or if that's too big a question, maybe if we narrow it down and we're just talking perhaps about millennials and, and Gen Z, what, what are some key things that we can think of in order to connect and communicate in, in a better way? Well, if uh, I'm going to quote Caleb on something um, that uh, if you uh, if you're going to say something derogatory about another generation, insert your generation here and the same rule will apply. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, I, I think that the most important thing I could tell people is, is that understand, okay, look at it like this. If you look at the span from about 1920 to today, that's over 120 years. It's fair to say that the world's changed quite a bit in 120 years. Mm. Um, it's more than 120 years. And if you think about what was going on at the time in 1920 in America, it was the Great Depression. Um, people were going through enormous hardships and all that. That set the stage for certain behaviors and certain moral beliefs and uh, certain social standards that moved over into the generation after them and even up into the baby boomers. Um and I, I know some of these things, I'm, uh, you know, my seminars are very Americanized, but uh, I'm certain that a lot of these basic principles are the same worldwide. You, what you have is a core group of people that, that over many years learned and adapted to certain social norms. Okay. Now, in America, the baby boomers, I'm trying to do this quick. Yeah, you're fine. The baby you're boomers fine. started the baby boomers started rebelling against the establishment. They started questioning things. But interestingly enough, as they moved over into adulthood, they actually became that institution that they that they kind of rebelled against. And I think what uh, – I'm going to cross over into pure opinion here, but this is based on 
a good many years now, about five or six years of research and lots of uh, lots of books and studies that uh, I think that they unintentionally passed on through Gen X and through uh, the millennials, this uh, questioning everything around you uh, mentality. And so uh, my joke is, is that the boomers rebelled against everything and then they grew up to be the establishment that they rebelled against. And then when the millennials came along and did the same thing, they got mad at them. That makes no sense at all. Mm. Um, but at the end of the day, what I would encourage everybody to do, take those set of circumstances that I just described. That's a perfect storm for a communication breakdown. It's a perfect storm for it. And if everyone from every generation would take a few minutes and get to know each other and, you know, you ask me about my backstory, maybe ask somebody their backstory and get to know them a little bit. They're probably going to give you a little insight into why they believe what they believe and why they think what their way is. Now, recognizing that very many of us as human beings get caught up in this, it's what I think is correct, but it's not. It's we're guilty of assuming that the people that we interact with are like me, Hmm. but you're not like me and I'm not like you. And if we could learn to think that no one's like me, then all of a sudden the communication starts to open up and we can understand each other a lot easier. So I would encourage anybody from any generation to, to, kind of look across the stereotypes and the criticisms and all the negativities that we all pass in every direction and maybe try to understand who the person on the other end of the conversation is. It may be that you gain a, gain a whole lot of understanding about somebody that you didn't have before. Mm. Yeah. Just a, a follow-up question to that. Uh, something that I have observed as uh, as a millennial and looking at my peers and also the generations that have gone before me, there, with that um, communication disconnect between the generations, it seems to have brought a rather abrupt halt to mentorship of any kind. Because if you can't communicate, it's very difficult to mentor somebody. And so do you think that that's had a, an effect on, um, the, on building new generations of leaders? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, according to um, some information that uh, I, I – this is secondhand information, but I got it from uh, Ty Gibson uh, through a uh, sermon that he gave at a evangelism uh, conference I went to. On any given Sabbath, about 4% of people in Seventh-day Adventist churches in North America are between the ages of 18 and 29. 4%. So I would say that what you just said is absolutely true. Hmm. And not only that age group, uh, millennials aren't the only absent ones. Hmm. Uh, Z is quickly coming up missing, and Generation X is missing as well. Hmm. And so what you have is, I know this from being an NCD coach, because part of the NCD process is is you look at, at the average age of the churches and you can see these big black holes of these age groups in many many churches um i think it's because of what you just said there's there there because of this communication breakdown 
we've lost the ability to mentor each other and to, uh, to actually disciple people. Mm. And unfortunately, some some of our folks are reluctant to change. And that's made it even more difficult to reach the world around you. It's almost like you speak Greek and the rest of the world speaks Assyrian. And uh, you, know, you know what I mean? Yeah. There's just going to be no – or Chinese. There's going to be no communication there at all. And the language today is different. Literally, the language today is different than it was when our church was founded. Yeah. So, so we can't speak the, the language of Exactly. Yeah, you can't speak the language of the 1800s and think that it's going to translate well. Again, you know, I emphasize to everybody in that we're not trying to change the truth. We're trying to change how we talk about it. The truth is the truth. That's okay. And so how do you think about uh, or what do you personally do when you're thinking about raising the next generation of leaders? Because uh, obviously, I think any good leader is on a mission to reproduce themselves or to you know find somebody to fill that gap. And uh, how do you think about that and what do you do about that in your context? Uh, the first thing I try to do is be the person I claim I am. That's the most important thing, I think, because one, one of the most influential people in my my world uh, in my Christian walk and that led me to becoming an Adventist didn't preach to me ever. He talked to me, answered my questions, but most like most importantly, he lived his life out loud. And so what I've tried to do is live my life out loud and, you know, be the best person that I can be. Uh, that I think that's first and foremost. And then, Secondly, I simply just try to find ways to to help where I'm able to. I'm not capable of doing everything, but in the areas that I'm able to, um, I've got one young man. I'm trying to help learn to play the guitar. Um, I've got another young man that uh, we uh, he was uh, very much wanting to learn to play the piano, and we had an extra uh, keyboard at our house, so we gave it to him. Um, and I don't say that so that, you know, people say, hey, oh, you know, we're all that. I don't mean it that way. I mean, just looking for the opportunity to help someone in an area that's relevant. Well, those two young men are in church every Sabbath, both of them. Hmm. And one of them is 14 and the other one is 17. And so I'm not taking credit for that. What I'm saying is, is that by simply, you know, Ellen White said it right. Jesus method alone will bring people to Christ. And that's, you mingle with men as one who desires their good. And uh, I guess just thinking about that, uh, the the reason that, uh, for those that are listening, the reason that I found out about Tim was be- because uh, Caleb of Humans of Adventism uh, posted a, a message on, on Facebook telling a bit of his experience with Tim and uh, really just laying out there the effect that Tim has had on his life. And Caleb was saying that Tim is someone that he aspires to be like. And that is, uh, you know, that's a great example of the effect that that you're leaving, Tim. You know, the the fact that you're living your life in such a way so as the people that are close to you who actually know who you are want to be like you. And I think that is, that's a big challenge for anybody, but especially for any Adventists. We should be, that's what we should be doing. Uh, yeah, it's not easy, and uh, you're not perfect, but but I don't represent myself as perfect either. Yeah. 
I, I hold myself out as, you know, my imperfect self. And uh, I'm just a guy that's doing the best he can with what he's got. So just to start wrapping up for today, would you be able to tell me what uh, what Orangeburg is like today? Like what, what does the, the church look like now in comparison to that description that you gave of it when you arrived? Yeah, absolutely. So in five years, we had we've gone from uh, average attendance of about seventeen to right up around forty-seven. Um, we've had as many as sixty-five. Uh, we started a prayer campaign, praying for three families with children. We now have four. Hmm. Um, we had no children in the church, zero, when we arrived. Um, uh, let's see, we've. Um, you know, we've started trying to do outreach. We uh, we went on a strategic planning retreat and spent a whole weekend planning the future of God's work in Orangeburg and put together a very concrete, specific plan in writing and who was responsible for what and all that put together. And we're actually acting on that plan. Um, it's sometimes it's very agonizingly slow, but we are acting on it. Uh, we have some direction. Um, we have people who put emphasis on showing the love of Jesus to people who walk into our doors and to the people that are outside of our doors. And, um, I don't know, you know, I think the biggest thing we went through was a change of heart. People looked in the mirror and they were honest about what they saw there. And so we had a, we wonder when, I think the biggest thing we wonder went was a heart change. Yeah, and that's great. So, uh, just to just to wrap up, final question: If someone's listening and they see that their own church is having trouble, it, it it's dying or dead, what would be the advice that you would give them or the encouragement that you would give them? I would encourage them that a good place to start is with NCD, Natural Church Development. Mm-hmm. It's a great way to take a measurement of where you are and where the work needs to be. Um, everyone. Most of the churches that I coach, they don't know where to start. Uh, they, they don't know how to get started, and I think NCD does a pretty good job of at least giving you a couple of, you know, it gives you an overall holistic view, but then take a couple of those things. Don't try to fix it all. Take a couple of those things and focus on those. Uh, I would encourage any church to focus on hospitality always. That wins every time. Um, and pray. I think, uh, you know, we had a group of men that met every Sunday morning, and they still do, to pray for our church. And um, the the just leading with the Holy Spirit and leading with the love of Jesus, um, we're not leading with doctrine. We're not leading with anything. We're leading with the love of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, if uh, you put Jesus at the heart of everything you do, then you're going to win. It's not hopeless. These We have— miracle churches that are turning around and becoming life coming back to life and becoming vibrant places lights in their community and i I don't think it's impossible and i have a fervent belief that uh, none of god's churches should have to die amen amen and thank you so much i really really appreciate your insight it's it's been great to to hear your experience as well so um so tim thank you so much for being on the show thank you i'm very honored to have been invited thank you 
And that's the end of another episode. Just before I head off, I want to encourage you to go over to our page on Facebook and also our account on Instagram and follow us there because that is where we interact with our listeners and we would love for you to enter in and join the conversation. Also, while you're signing up, I would also recommend signing up to our mailing list on our website, oztabletalk.com.au. If you do that, you will receive our exclusive content because occasionally we do release exclusives and they only go out to our mailing list. So I would strongly recommend you go and sign up for that. If you have a few more minutes to be one of the most amazing listeners on the planet, you can go over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review because reviews help us to grow and they help other people to find us. So if you want to help us reach those goals, please jump in and give us a review. The final message that I'd like to leave you with is to let you know about our Patreon account. Now, Patreon is a way for creators to get paid for creating. And ultimately, what we do does cost money to get us hosted and have the services that we need to run the podcast. And so if you'd like to help us do that, jump over onto patreon.com slash oztabletalk and you can you can give anything from even a dollar a month upwards. But at different levels, there are different benefits, different rewards that we want to give you just to say thank you for being an amazing supporter of ours. If you can't afford that, we would just gratefully accept your prayers because that is what our ministry runs on. And so with that, I will leave you to your day and thank you so much for listening to this episode. We look forward to seeing you guys next week.